Why don't we go ahead, we've just sang it, but there's a little bit more to it. Let's go ahead and begin our time reading the Apostles' Creed. We're doing a series on this. And the Apostles' Creed was put together, written, based on the truth of Scriptures, by then our church fathers, around 200 A.D. And uh, the reason that they saw fit to put together a creed as such was because there's so much, there was so much confusion, there was a lot of false teaching, there was a lot of heresy that um, they felt would threaten God's people. And so they wanted to write a statement, a declaration, a divine mission statement, if you will, where we all agreed on what we believe. And as I uh, have said the last few times I've taught here, uh, the word believe is just not an intellectual acknowledgement of a historical fact. It's much deeper than that. Belief is a verb. It's a noun, but it is more than that. It's a verb. It's an action word. When Christ says, if you believe in me, pick up your cross and follow me. That's more than just a historical sentiment or a nice thought. It's bloody. It's painful. It's hopeful. It's our eternal life in Christ. But it is more than just believing. As I said before, I've always believed in Abraham Lincoln as the 16th president, but I've never met the man, have you? That's just an intellectual fact that he was our 16th president. But we don't know him. When we're told to believe in Christ, that we might have everlasting life, it goes to the depths of our spirit and our soul, and it's a lifelong commitment. We're to never put the cross down. We're to never keep our eyes off him and go off in a direction, different direction. We're to follow him. Amen? That's what we're talking about here. It is a lifelong commitment. Lifelong. So tonight, um, we're going to go ahead and read it. Is that up on the screen? You're going to put it up on the screen up there? We're going to read it as well uh, in unison. And tonight's um, focus is... I believe in the resurrection. Let's begin now. I believe in God the Father Almighty, creator of heaven and earth. I believe in Jesus Christ, his only Son, our Lord, who was conceived by the Holy Spirit, born of the Virgin Mary, suffered under Pontius Pilate, was crucified, died, and was buried. On the third day he rose again, he ascended into heaven, and is seated at the right hand of God. He will come to judge the living and the dead. I believe in the Holy Spirit, the Holy Catholic Church, the communion of saints, the forgiveness of sins, the resurrection of the body, and life everlasting. Amen. Well, a couple of weeks ago, I talked about of all of the lines or the statements of faith in the creed that uh, most people 
have struggled with, those that don't know Christ, um, false teachers, those of different faiths, um, is the virgin birth. That really um, stopped people in their tracks when they were learning about the faith of Christianity was the virgin birth, and we talked about that a couple of weeks ago. But they really struggle with the resurrection of Christ. Uh, R.C. Sproul, a theologian that I greatly respect, put it this way, if the skeptics of the 20th century choked on the idea of the virgin birth, then modern theologians apply the Heimlich maneuver to dislodge the truth of the resurrection of Christ. I mean, this is the one that really takes it. And notice, in the creed, both the virgin birth and the resurrection of Christ are sovereign acts of God, cannot be dismissed or minimized. And so that's what we're going to do. We're going to talk about that tonight. The Apostle Paul ran into this not long after he started preaching. He ran into one of his first... um, skeptical crowds in Athens. The place is still there to this day. Athens, Greece, it's called Mars Hill. And the Greeks were known as being highly philosophical and intellectual. And so the story um, is told in the book of Acts where Paul was walking through the marketplace and of course, in, in Greece, there's all kinds of idols. There's all kinds of gods, small g. And there was one particular um, stand, or, or I don't know if it was a, a sacred table or whatever they would call it, and it said to the unknown god. So they wanted to leave room for the possibility that there was another god out there they didn't know about. And so right above the marketplace, it's called the Agora, Right above this place called the Agora, which means gift, marketplace, um, was an Acropolis, or they called it Mars Hill. It's still there, beautiful ruins in Athens. And Paul started teaching the philosophers and the Stoics about Christ, the gospel of Christ. I don't believe they had heard it at that point. And uh, when he talked about, I know this because I was there and we were with an archaeologist and a a theology professor, and they stated that when Paul was teaching them and trying to convince them that the unknown God was Christ, he probably pointed to the marketplace because he he acknowledged their unknown God and he said, now I want to tell you who that unknown God is. It's Christ, the Lord Jesus Christ through God the Father. And then he talked to them about the resurrection, and he said these words. God has set a day when he will judge the world with justice through Christ. He has given proof of all of this to men by raising Christ from the dead. When they heard of the resurrection, some sneered at him. The resurrection? They believed in life after death, the Greeks did. But they did not believe that our human bodies would be changed and raised to be with the Lord forever. They did not believe in that. They sneered at him, and people have been sneering about it ever since. The resurrection, the validity of God breathing life 
into Christ's cold corpse and raising him from the dead, breaking out of that tomb, ascending into heaven. The very same thing he's going to do to us who know the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, there's a couple of different views that have developed through the centuries that this is not a fact. It is not something we can stake our eternal life and future on. And one theory is called the swoon theory. This theory um, suggests that when Christ was on the cross, he only fainted. And when they took his limp body down, we know that's ridiculous because the medical experts say that when water and blood came out of his body, they have a certain term for it that I don't remember, um, that is a sure sign that he was completely dead. But the theory is that he just passed out on the cross. I mean, they need more faith to believe this stuff than we do. He passed out on the cross, and then they wrapped him, the women wrapped him in cloths and poured spices on him. And because of the coolness of the tomb and the smell of spices, he woke up. I mean, how believable is that? Others claim, and we know this to be true because it's actually in the scriptures, where the Romans were instructed, they were placed at the tomb, and they were instructed to make sure that no one would steal his body. And of course, that was the circulated um, myth after Christ came to life, was that his disciples stole him. And then there's other theologians who just claims that it's simply a myth. There's nothing believable about it. And we're going to talk about why it has happened and how we know it's happened, not only biblically, but personally. In the 60s, I was raised, I don't know if I've told you this before, it doesn't really matter, but I was raised about six blocks from Haight-Ashbury in San Francisco. That's where the hippie movement, I was going to say hoopie, the the hoopy hippies. That's where the hippie movement began. That's where, you know, the psychedelic drugs became very popular and the Grateful Dead and all these people. And I was only 16. I mean, I walked to Haight-Ashbury. I was right in the middle of all this, not behaving myself. But anyhow, I remember that the chant back then was that God was dead. God was dead. They picketed the Vietnam War. Everything was about free love. And they also believed and were trafficking the fact that God is dead. And one time Billy Graham had just preached one of his evangelistic sermons in stadiums. And a man came up to him after and he said, Well, the Jesus you just talked about, the God you just represented, is dead. And Billy Graham said, well, that's, that's not true. He and I just had a conversation this morning. <laughs> so just for that reason, we know he's not dead. He speaks to our heart through the scriptures. We talk to him. So um, a lot of theories to disprove. 
One of the ways theologians or the early, um, we'll call them the earlier first century theologians, and then beyond, especially then beyond actually, um, determine that it's a historical truth is based by what they said or what they wrote in what particular era or time frame. And there is no doubt, after literary, literary criticism and the discovery of thousands of fragments of manuscripts, there is no doubt that the writers of the New Testament and the truths of the New Testament, such as his resurrection, was written in the first century. Which sends many scholars running in fear, or at least chills going up their spine, and they're going, oh no. The scriptures were written in the first century. That's been proven. It's fact. It's not to be debated. So um, one of the examples of the accuracy, so those that wrote the scriptures were, of course, the people that we know of, but scribes, Jewish Hebrew scribes, would copy down the scriptures and they would pass them along year after year, age after age, millennial after millennial. And these scribes were so accurate in how they copied the text that the best example we've come up in the last 70 years was the finding of the Dead Sea Scrolls. So the Dead Sea Scrolls were found not far from the Dead Sea in the arid area, very deserty area of um, out of Jerusalem, probably 20 miles or so, 30 miles out of Jerusalem, Israel. And in 1947... A Bedouin shepherd was uh, taking his herd for a walk, and he hambled, uh, happened to stumble upon a cave. Now, if you were to go there today, it's still kind of the same terrain, and there's caves along the mountainsides. They look like honeycombs. They're everywhere. And he happened to stumble into this cave to cool off, I'm sure, and found several large clay pots. And in one of the clots, or several of the pots, I think, actually, they found the Dead Sea Scrolls. These were scriptures that had been handed down and scribed for centuries that were hidden there. The book of Isaiah, so this book of Isaiah that they found was a thousand years older than the manuscripts they were reading then in 1947. So the manuscripts they found were a thousand years older. And when they laid those older manuscripts next to the book of Isaiah, there was no difference. That's how accurate these scribes wrote things down. And so we get validation from God's word, both in the Old Testament, because Christ's death, burial, resurrection was prophesied 
as we're going to start teaching on as well. Some of us pastors on Wednesday nights. Those are going to be Sundays, actually. We're going to teach on four or five Sundays. Isaiah talks about Christ as the suffering servant. Goes back all those years. And so... The, but, but as far as the New Testament goes, have you turned, have you turned to 1 Corinthians 15? Let's do that. Turn to 1 Corinthians 15. So we stake our life and our truth and our belief on the scriptures. The authenticity of the scriptures. The clarity. The inerrant truth of the scriptures. That is, there's no error. We stake our life on it, our faith on it. And that's one of the greatest sources of the validation, if the not the greatest source of the validation of the resurrection is the Word of God, both in Old and New Testament. 1 Corinthians 15 is the clearest and most detailed description of the resurrection that we'll find in God's Word. We know that Matthew, Mark, Luke, John talk about the actual event of the resurrection, of course, And it's mentioned through Acts and a lot of places in the New Testament. But the clearest um, chapter about the event of the resurrection or the nature of the resurrection or the purpose of the resurrection is 1 Corinthians chapter 15. So we're going to read a little bit out of that today, okay? Now, before we read it, understand that the Corinthians, Paul had been there, I believe, three years And uh, they were very, very worldly, immoral, carnal people in their life. Most of them, there were Greeks. Matter of fact, Corinth is still there. It's 50 miles away from Athens. And if you were to go to the city of Corinth today, the ruins are very, very intact. And there's a very, very... High-peaked mountain there, looks like a big granite high-peaked mountain, and on the top of it you can see uh, ruins of a temple. It was the temple, I believe, of Aphrodite. And every night, um, Greek women who were prostitutes would go up there. They would worship their Aphrodite god, and they would come down every night into the city of Corinth to plow their trade. And they would uh, play symbols, which Paul refers to in 1 Corinthians 10, 13. He says, um, he's talking about what love is. And he says, if you don't have the true love of Christ, it's like clanging symbols. And he's kind of painting a picture of that scene, actually. And... uh, so, so Paul is writing to believers. They're definitely new believers, but they are, they're having a hard time of switching their, their belief system. They were struggling with the resurrection. Paul is answering one of their skeptical struggles. They were having a hard time with it. And when you read first and second Corinthians, that's basically what both books are about. He's answering their skepticism and their struggle to believe certain things, even as new believers. Okay, So apparently they had a question, they had a doubt about the validity of the resurrection of Christ. And so he addresses it. He's answering their skepticism. So let's look at verse 1 
I'll jump to verse 3 after that, and uh, we'll talk about that. But verse 1, he says, Now, brothers, meaning they're believers, I want to remind you of the gospel I preached to you, which you've received and on which you have taken your stand. So they're believers. By this gospel you are saved, if you hold firmly. Now, do you know if we're going to claim our faith in Christ... We must hold firmly in our belief, our faith, and our allegiance to the gospel. To do otherwise, we don't know Christ. We know about him. So he says, you know that you have believed and you've been saved if you hold firmly to the gospel You've taken your stand to the word I preach you. Otherwise, you believe in vain. So it's more than just, we're not talking about an easy believe, believism. We're talking about if Christ is in your life, then we believe everything he said and everything the apostles taught. Did you know that? That that's part of the package? That's the package deal. We have faith in all of it. Now, he gets into his thoughts on the resurrection. Um, and, and in verse 3 through 5 is the first recorded creed. We read the Apostles' Creed, came out 200 A.D. This is the first written creed, and it's Paul's, based on the gospel. Look what he says. For what I received, I passed on to you as of the first importance, simply meaning when I came to you with the gospel, what I'm going to tell you now was the thing I started with. It was the ABCs of what I taught you about Christ. It was of first importance. It ranks highest in theology. It was the most important thing I started to teach you. That's what he's saying when I was with you. Of first importance that Christ died for our sins According to the scriptures, he's at least referring to Isaiah 52 and 53. At least. That he was buried, that he was raised on the third day. Third day meaning Good Friday, Saturday, and Easter Sunday. Third day. Because a lot of people have discrepancies about that too. Born on the third day, according to the scriptures. I like the way he keeps going back. According to the scriptures, according to the scriptures, according to the scriptures. That is our basis of faith and truth. Period. And that he appeared. So the first thing he's saying is the first validation of the resurrection is the word of God, the scriptures. Historical documents. Historical documents that have been kept very... Um, preserved for centuries. And then he talks about the validation of eyewitnesses. Look at this. He says, um, and that he appeared to Peter. So it's one thing to say that he was raised from the dead, but it's another thing to cite the specific people that he actually appeared to. And he appeared to Peter we know that he did that in John 21. We know that he saw him um, uh, in the upper room. There might have been another time. We don't quite know when. 
And then to the twelve. That was probably the upper room. After that, he appeared to more than 500. We don't know what that setting was. Doesn't matter. He appeared to 500 of the brothers at the same time. So this is not just a little band of 11 apostles. Judas is dead now. This is not a little band of 11 apostles that are in agreement of what they should say. We're talking about 500 people, and I love the fact that he says, in the same setting. Then he says, most of whom are still living. So Corinthians, if you have any doubt... There are hundreds of people that are still alive today while you're reading this letter that you can talk to that have firsthand evidence that Christ was raised from the dead. And then he said something very fascinating. Then he appeared to James and to all the apostles. Now, by the way, James, the James that he appeared to was his half-brother who wrote the book of James. And it's very clear in the New Testament that Jesus' siblings did not believe in him until after the resurrection. So it's very interesting to me that after the resurrection, it actually says James didn't believe until after he was raised. So now he's raised, he goes straight to his half-brother. Shows him his hands, his feet. James then not only believes but he becomes the leader of the apostles in the early church, James. He was also so committed to his former half-brother, now his Lord and Savior, so committed, as a previous skeptic, so committed to the validity of his son, being his brother being raised from the dead, that... He was put on top of a temple, maybe by the Jews, probably the Romans, I don't know who put him up there. They pushed him off the temple and clubbed him to death. James. The James that didn't believe in his older brother, but now believes him so much that he's martyred and clubbed to death willingly. So Jesus appeared to him, and he appeared to Peter. But look at else who he appeared to. Uh, James was not a believer. He also appeared to, um, look at verse 7, then he appeared to James and all the apostles, and last of all, he appeared to me also as one abnormally born. He appeared to Paul, and what Paul is saying is abnormally born is, is an odd term, but basically... He appeared to me on the road to Damascus while I was on my way to slaughter his people. And he revealed himself to me and said, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? Jesus. So I've said this before. When people mock you and I or show a disdain for the sacredness of God's word, and our King of kings and Lord of lords, they're actually persecuting him. Not us. 
So he appeared to Paul, who was not a believer, and he appeared to James, who was not a believer. And he revealed himself to 500 people. So you have the validity of eyewitnesses that Christ was risen from the dead. And then, of course, he showed himself um, at the tomb, the empty tomb, in, in the evening of. But then there's also the validation of history in the resurrection that we hold so dearly to us. Um, there's artifacts. We've been to Israel, some of you, many times. I've been three times. And there's artifacts and findings and ruins all over the Middle East that validate and prove that Christ was there, that teachings were real, that settings were accurate. Garden of Gethsemane, the hill outside Jerusalem where they say he, Christ was crucified, that whole area, it's still there. So it's validated by history, on and on and on and on. But the, one of the most interesting historical facts that I have, I want to share with you, comes out of this book by Josephus. Josephus was a Jewish, the Jewish historian of that day, of the first century. Okay, We don't know, I wish I could have talked to Rick about this, but we don't think that maybe he was a believer. He could have been, but we don't know for sure. But we know that he kept records for the Jews and kept a lot of the records of, of the Roman wars and things like this. So listen to this. Here's a Jewish historian in the time of Christ. He doesn't claim Christ. He's a historian. He was there. This is what he says. Now there was about this time, Jesus, a wise man, if it be lawful to call him a man. For he was a doer of wonderful works, a teacher of such men as received the truth with pleasure. In other words, when he taught, people loved listening to him. It was a pleasure to listen to his parables and how he spoke. And probably his eyes, while he talked, it was a pleasure to hear him teach. Um, he drew over to him both many of the Jews and many of the Gentiles. So we know that Jews had faith in Christ. Many Gentiles came to believe, as Paul especially did all of his journeys in his missionary journeys, many, many, went to many Gentile cities. He was the Christ. Now, the word the is in parentheses. So, you know, I, I, we probably, whoever, you know, did an updated version might have put the, but it says he was Christ, which, which means Messiah, the sent one, the King of kings, the Lord of lords, the deliverer of Israel. The one who would set God's people free from the dominion of the Roman iron fist, but a lot more than that. So he says, he was the Christ. And when Pilate, Pontius Pilate, he's mentioned in our creed. When Pilate, as the, at the suggestion of the principal men among us, that was the Jewish leaders, had condemned him to the cross, those that loved him at the first did not forsake him, for he appeared to them alive again on the third day. 
here's a historian that said Christ rose from the dead. Let me finish. As the divine prophets had foretold these and 10,000 other wonderful things concerning him and the tribe of Christians so named from him are not extinct at this day or this day. Isn't that cool? Historical statement of fact. It's in a history book. That Christ was real and he did marvelous miracles and he had a band of men that followed him and he was crucified on a cross and he rose from the dead on the third day. Not though we need this, but it helps. So if you have anybody that's not a believer, this is a good start. Okay, so the validation of history. Now, let's uh, get into 1 Corinthians 5.12. Paul starts to reason with his uh, readers about um, the power and the necessity of Christ's resurrection. And if, in fact, they were right, the Corinthians were right, and it was not true, and it was just a myth, and it really didn't happen, he lays out in a very um, um, simple way, like as if he was an attorney, he lays out proof as to why that would not be possible. Okay, so let's look at this. He's given evidence, or he is saying if he has not been raised, all of these things would happen. Okay, let's look at verse Corinthians uh, 15, verse 12. He says, but if it's preached that Christ has been raised from the dead, how can some of you say there is no resurrection of the dead? So they not only uh, struggled with the fact that Christ was raised from the dead, these people struggled with the whole notion of a resurrection, period. Okay, And so he says, if there is no resurrection of the dead, then not even Christ has been raised. Now here we get into some very powerful things that he says. And if Christ has not been raised, our preaching is useless, and so is your faith. So if Jesus did not raise from the dead, if he was not risen from the dead, our faith would be a hoax. It would be useless. If it was only the cross, it wouldn't have been enough. I'll explain that in a moment. We had to have the empty tomb in order to have a faith that's intact. Let me read on. If Christ had not been raised, our preaching is useless, and so is your faith. You can throw it out the window. More than that, we are then found to be false witnesses about God because we've testified about the fact that God raised Christ. And so if he has not been risen, then we're, we're a hoax. We're defrauders. Don't listen to us anymore. Everything we've taught you and you believed is not valid. Yet, what they taught in the gospel to the Corinthians, when the Corinthians believed, there was an instant change. They were transformed. And we'll talk about that in a little bit. 
They still had carnal tendencies. I mean, you know how it is when you come to Christ. It's not like all of a sudden you you know everything you need to know and, you know, you are like ultimately 100% sanctified in terms of your behavior right away. I mean, after I came to Christ, all I thought about was Jesus and I still had long hair and puka shells. I just didn't do the other stuff that went, used to go with them. More than that, he says. God did not raise him, in fact, if the dead are not raised. And he says, verse 16, For if the dead are not raised, here's another thing, if the dead are not raised, then Christ has not been raised either. And if Christ has not been raised, oh, I already said that, your faith is futile, you're still in your sins. You're still in your sins. You've not been forgiven. You've no, you don't have salvation if he's not been raised. You can't be forgiven if he's not been raised. And look at this one. For those of us that have loved ones that have died. And if he's not been raised, then those also who have fallen asleep in Christ are lost. They're not going to heaven like we thought they would. They're lost. If only for this life we have hope in Christ. Listen to this phrase. If only in this life, for this life, we have hope in Christ, we are to be pitied more than all men. So Christ forgave us when he laid his life down on Calvary's cross. But it wasn't validated until the Father accepted it by opening that tomb. He died for our sins. They were washed away when the tomb was open. You have to have both. The New Testament says he died for our sins and was raised to life for our justification. If there's no risen Savior, there's no forgiveness. So the empty tomb was God's acceptance of his son's sacrifice for his glory and honor. That's powerful. I read that this week and I go, whoa! I've not heard it put that way before. It's true. Theologically, it's true. Verse 20. Uh, let's go down to verse 30. So we've, he's given reasons. If Christ has not been raised, your faith is useless. We're liars. You're still in your sins. You've not been saved. Your loved ones are lost forever. They're not in heaven. If Christ has not been risen. And he says, if only in life we have Christ in, on this side of life, we're to be pitied. Look at verse 30. I really like this one. He gives one more reason why absolutely the resurrection has taken place. He says, and as far as us, he's talking about him and the apostles now, as far as us, why do we endanger ourselves every hour? Why would we risk our life for the truth of the resurrection of Christ if it hadn't happened? Now keep your finger there 
And I want you to turn to 1 Corinthians, uh, hold on, 2 Corinthians chapter 11, let me look. 2 Corinthians chapter 11. Okay, here we go. Chapter 11, 2 Corinthians chapter 11. Um, yeah, verse 23, he's trying to reason with these Corinthians that uh, you have no idea how my faith has been expressed in terms of how I've been endangered and how I've suffered for the glory of Christ. He says, verse 23, um, am I out of my mind to talk like this? And then he goes, I am more. So he starts here. I have worked much harder, been in prison frequently for his faith, been in prison frequently, been flogged more severely, been exposed to death again and again. Five times I received from the Jews the 40 lashes minus one. Three times I was beaten with rods. Once I was stoned, and I'll pause there and say probably to death, and the Lord resuscitated him there, the book of Acts, because the brothers that saw him go down um, thought he was dead and he was revived. Three times I've been shipwrecked. I spent a night and day in the open sea. I've been constantly on the move. I've been in danger from rivers, in danger from bandits, in danger from my own countrymen, in danger from the Gentiles, in danger in the city, in danger in the country, in danger at sea, in danger from false brothers. I have labored and toiled and have often gone without sleep. I've known hunger and thirst and have often gone without food. I have been cold and naked besides everything else. I face daily the pressure of my concern for the churches. And then he ends up, when he came to Christ, after he came to Christ in Damascus, you remember on the road to Damascus, the Lord struck him down, caused him to have a blindness, told him to go to Damascus, and someone would pray for him, and his eyes were open, and he followed Christ from that point. Started preaching right away. Started preaching right away. And uh, they were infuriated with him. And this is what he, they had to do. He's a baby Christian. And they did this to him right away. Listen to this. As if he hadn't gone through enough. He says, uh, um, verse 31, The God and Father of the Lord Jesus Christ is to be praised forever, knows that I am not lying. In Damascus, the governor under King Aretas had the city of Damascus guarded in order to arrest me, but I was lowered in a basket from a window in the wall and slipped through his hands. So, his last reason is to say, who among, among God's disciples and apostles would continue to go through this type of brutality if he wasn't risen from the dead. And so that's his reasoning. Very, very powerful. Very powerful. Now turn to, um, in chapter 15, um, let me just go for this. Actually, we'll get to, there, get to it in a little bit. 
Now I want to just end with the purpose of the resurrection. Why? Romans 4.25, I just quoted it. Jesus died for our sins and was raised to life for our justification. Resurrection ratified God's forgiveness through Christ because of the empty tomb. Otherwise, he just died for our sins. But we were raised to life for our justification. That means just as if we'd never sinned. Okay? Secondly, through the resurrection of Jesus, God announces that Jesus is Lord and King above all. Because of all of the leaders of the other faiths that have ever lived, and all of the false pagan gods and idolatry, and even the current sects and cults of our day, not a one of them, not Buddha, not Mohammed, no other ringleader of any cult or belief system has ever been raised from the dead. Their bodies are still there. They're just dust now. And no one has claimed that they have come back from the dead. Why? Because Christ is King of kings and Lord of lords and the only one risen from the dead. We're going to follow, though. Then we read, on that note, that Christ... Actually, look at uh, 15, verse 20. But Christ has indeed been raised from the dead the first fruits of those who had fallen asleep. Now, the first fruits, generally, in the Jewish community, when they um, were to pick their harvest, they would take the best of the fruit, the first fruits, the most luscious, freshest of the fruit, and many times they would offer it to the Lord, when they had sacrifices with animals and other things, but it's always been placed as the best. The first fruits is the best. And Paul says that because of what Christ has done, he's the first fruits and many will follow. So he set the stage of what's going to happen to us. So if you ask yourself, well, I wonder what it's like you know, when we, when we die, what happens? I wonder what it's going to be like. Well, just as Christ, Christ's body was limp and cold in the tomb, and the power of God punched breast in, uh, uh, breath into his heart, and he stood up. When we came to Christ, I mean, I remember it. I remember the second. I was dead. I was dead. I was dead in my sins, just like you were. And when we came to Christ and we submitted, that moment, divine oxygen entered into our lungs and we were given new life. I remember the next morning when I woke up, everything was bright. It was like brighter than I've ever seen it. And it's never changed. New life through Christ.
So we are going to be raised just like he was. We're going to have a glorified body just like he did. We're going to be able to eat just like he did. Some of you are saying, praise God for that. Because, you know, after he was risen from the dead, he met with some of his disciples and he ate fish and bread. This is after he was raised from the dead. He showed them his hands, feet, ate fish and bread. We're going to eat. It's a marriage supper of a lamb. So he was the first fruits of many. You and I are the many. And millions and millions and millions of followers are the many. He set the course. He showed us how. And we're going to follow suit, just like him. You know, one of the reasons also that he was raised from the dead is it was God's way of um, conquering our fear of death. Believing in Christ's resurrection should conquer our fear of death. Now, we all are concerned about it at different times. Personally, I mean, I'm not on my deathbed, and so I might change my tune. I've seen some great saints on their deathbed all of a sudden get very nervous. But I've seen many die with a smile on their face. Uh, At this point in my life, I'm not afraid to die. I'm just concerned about how I'm going to (laughs) die. And I have five ways that I don't want to die. God can take his pick, which... I don't want to fall off a building. I don't want to be stabbed. I don't want to drown, burn in a fire, or get eaten by anything. (laughs) That would be the worst. But the resurrection was set in motion so it would conquer our fear of death. And for sure put to rest the penalty of eternal death. That's the reason also for the resurrection. Um, a new age has begun. You know, he didn't even uh, raise from the dead at the end of time. He, he was raised from the dead mid-time. And do you know that when you came to Christ and you received eternal life, your eternal life started then. We have eternal life right now. We won't see it in its full zenith till we get there, but we already have eternal life. We're not waiting for it. We already have it. Matter of fact, Paul says in Ephesians, we're already seated with him in the heavenlies. Right now, we're already there. Our eternal life began the moment we broke the sound barrier and said yes to Christ. So it's taken away the curse. But the thing that really got my attention when I was looking at a variety of reasons, what the impact, the purpose, the benefits, the reality of our lives as believers when we believe that he was raised on the third day is this. The very same power that rose Christ up from that tomb and brought him out in a glorified body we have in us right now. Right now. Paul says, I want to know. I want to know more 
about Christ and the power of his resurrection. His resurrection life is in us already. How do I know? Because when I gave my life to Christ, I was dead. I was dead. And I tell you what, when the Lord came into my life through the power of the Holy Spirit as He has yours, I have never been the same. It's nice that we have the validity of history. It's nice, really nice, essentially nice, that we have the validity of the Scriptures. It's nice that there was many witnesses. But I know that I know that I know, as you should, that the power of the resurrection is real because it transformed our life. Amen? That's the power of the resurrection. The same power that took him out of the grave gave us new life when we became born again. Let's rejoice in it. Thank you, Lord, for your word, for your truth. It's just exciting to know that that same power that rose up Christ from the dead rose us up from being dead in our sins. And you gave us new life. And now we wait. We wait for the time, Lord, when you call us home and then we get to understand what glorification is all about and what paradise will be like and what eternity will be like with you. Thank you for our hope, that hope of eternal life. In Jesus' name, amen. I feel good, too. But I wasn't expecting to agree with James Brown through that song. Dude, did someone do that on purpose? Because that was perfect. Whoa, I feel good. In Jesus' name, amen. God bless you.